All right, my good friends, you all have a copy from last week and this week. The last week copy looks like this, the theology of Christmas. This week looks like this. It's just right up here in the front. If anybody needs one. Tim, would you, would you make sure, Jeff, would you guys make sure everybody gets one of those? They should leave some yeah, we might leave leave some. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get out of the pastor's I'll tell you, I need three. <laughs> Did I do? Uh. Okay, my dear friends, <laughs> we're going to get our class started here. Let me just give you a couple of things to keep in your mind. Um, number one, you will need, again, let me just say you'll need this uh, sheet as well as the one that was handed out today. We've got a few of these left over there. I think most of you got the necessary uh, material and um, sorry about that. I, I just keeps on it keeps on happening to me that I end up having to produce more material as I think of the things that I want you to know. And <clears throat> I don't trust your memories because it's a lot like my memory, which uh, I forget a lot of things. So it's better that you have a piece of paper that you can go back and review. Right? That's very very important. Um, I want to tell you about January 5th. Um, there is at uh, Jeff Kirkland's church a special prophecy conference. And uh, I will be speaking at the conference. Pastor Rich will be there. Marty Zide will be there as well. Um, Tommy Ice. Tommy Ice wrote a lot of books with Tim LaHaye on End Times, if you might remember him. So he'll be there as well, Scott Parker, and of course, Jeff also. And we're talking on a variety of topics uh, on prophecy. Like for example, I'm talking about uh, the ultimate day of judgment. So we're talking about how everything, I'm gonna be dealing with how everything leads up to that day, that ultimate day of judgment. And really it's in response to the person that you may have, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> talked to that told you that they believe in a loving God that doesn't judge anyone. So this will answer that question with, uh, well, you don't believe in the God of the scriptures because I'm going to take you back through the history of God's judgment, what judgment looks like today, and what will the ultimate end look like. Matter of fact, I titled that ultimate end, preparing for your final exam. I thought that was kind of pretty good, huh? Every once in a while, if I have a donut, I get smarter. <clears throat> so, so anyways, that I, I wanted to tell you about that. And there's some other things you want to pay attention to in, uh, on the uh, app concerning the Christmas season, all that's happening, you know, for example, our Christmas Eve service, uh, all, everything is done on a Sunday because apparently Christmas Eve is a Sunday, right? And then Monday's Christmas day. Yeah. Oh, it's at, um, 
Uh, yeah, anybody can come. It's at uh, Jeff Kirkland's church, which is called Christ Fellowship Bible Church. And it's off of Litzinger in, uh, what is that? It's, what is that? Brentwood. Yeah, it's where it's at. It's in the evening. Pardon me? It's in the evening. It's Friday evening and half a day Saturday. I think it starts around 6 on Friday and then it, uh, it goes, I don't know what time, I think it's 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock. Uh, and it, it's promising to be very, very good. So you'll like it. I mean, especially if you're interested in how end times are unfolding in our day. Yeah. I have the address. If somebody oh, there. Would you give us the address? It's 9321. 9321. Litzinger Road. Litzinger Road. So it's right by that park there. Um, yeah. It's a Lutheran church, yeah, but they, they take, they've actually taken over the Lutheran church. <laughs> yes. Uh, that would be September or January 5th and 6th. So, and it uh, looks like, pardon me? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's going to be a flyer that you're going to get next week that's going to be available so you can have it, yeah. It's going to be put on there. Yeah, it's going to, they just, we all, all of us just got the information last night in, um, from Jeff in a email. So it's all fresh information because he had to put it together rather quickly. Uh, and so he did. <laughs> and uh, it should be very good. I, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, we've been studying the theology of Christmas and uh, we were studying last week uh, the power of God as we saw him uh, grant to a woman who was beyond childbearing years, probably well into her 60s or 70s. She would become the mother of John the Baptist by the power of God. Uh, and today we're going to examine how a virgin would be with child via the power of God. Remember our purpose in this entire study is to ask, what is it that we learn about God? What is it that we see in these narratives that give us information about God? Matter of fact, this paper here is designed to highlight some of the things that you see about God, you see about people, and things we should see about ourselves. So we're looking for that kind of information at a practical level as we go through these narratives. But we're also wanting to make sure that we understand clearly what the Bible says about the birth of Christ and all that follows it. Uh, like, for example, we're going to study the Magnificat, which is Mary's response of praise to the fact that God had blessed her to be the human instrument by which the Christ would enter the world. And after that, we're going to study Zacharias's prophecy about the same thing. I mean, after we get through the narratives. So we got a lot of interesting stories to look at. Uh, I was studying Zacharias's prophecy and I thought, man, that, that is so good. It oftentimes gets skipped. It's like nobody ever covers that in the narrative. So we'll do that. Let's pray together and we'll dig in where we left off. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today, hopefully with hearts ready for the implanting of divine truth so that we may take these things that we will learn today and insert them into our life, have them change our theology so it properly aligns with your word or have it change the, the uh, conduct of our life. Uh, 
because of the impact of God's word on us. Help us to extract what we can learn about you and about us as people and then about us as individual Christians from this study. Grant to me wisdom that I need so that I can speak with clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, take your notes and on, let's see, page, we want to go to page top, yeah, bottom of page two. Um, we talked about the power of God. We saw it, as I said, illustrated for us in, uh, in the fact that Elizabeth, being barren, now conceived a child who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. Jesus said that, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And how did this happen? It says at the bottom of page two, by the power of God in disrupting the natural order of things with supernatural activity. It's the power of God, the unlimited power of God that interrupts natural principles and does what is opposite of them. For example, a woman well beyond childbearing years who never had a child throughout her entire marriage, and now she gets pregnant. So that's the definition of a miracle. A miracle is generally the result of God exerting his power. That's generally what happens. It's the result of God exerting his power, and it produces um, from that um, the, you know, the, uh, the result being miraculous in nature. The bottom of the page, it says, we do learn about God from this narrative. What do we learn about God? And I already have that, and I'll go over that in a little bit later. The second part is, that what do we learn about people from this? We'll get that. And what is affirmed by biblical prophecy in this narrative? That's what I want to get to. So I want you to look in John chapter 1, John chapter 1. Then we're going to go over to Luke 2. And this is just highlighting the identity of John the Baptist made abundantly clear in John chapter 1. It begins with uh, verse 19, John chapter 1. It says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So John the Baptist made it abundantly clear that he is not the coming Messiah. Um, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Verse 21. And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So Elijah, the reason they asked that is that Elijah, it is said in the book of Malachi, is the one who precedes the coming of the Messiah. Now, technically, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah-like, but he is saying, I am not like the resurrection of Elijah, and he wanted them to understand it. The prophet is what Moses talked about in prophetically when he said, a prophet will come after me, and he was talking about the Messiah. So they're basically still trying to figure out, are you the Messiah? Are you the guy uh, who is like Elijah? Do you have the same power? All of that stuff. In verse 23, he said, he told them. Now, he's quoting from the, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 and verse 3, to be specific. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they said to, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, and he said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Where is your authority? Now he just told them that he's the fulfillment of the forerunner of the Messiah. So that should have been sufficient to answer their authority question. Verse 26, John answered and said to them, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John, I just wanted to make sure you understood with clarity what John himself says about himself, that he is the forewarner. His job was to prepare the hearts of people to receive the Messiah. And when they repented of their sins was what exactly what he was telling them. He would say, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. When they would repent of their sins, acknowledge their sin, then their heart was ready, was ready for the receiving of the Messiah. Now, with that said, let's go over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and let's look at the next narrative. I just kind of wanted to wrap up the story about John the Baptist before we moved on to the next. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2. If you turn in page 3, at the top of page 3, it says, Next, in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, Gabriel was sent by God to the lowly city of Nazareth to meet a young virgin girl named Mary to let her know that she was the selected vessel of God who would have the privilege of being the mother of our Lord. So let's take a look at the second chapter. No, I said the second chapter. I meant chapter 1, verse 26. Sorry about that. I got the second chapter in my mind because that's my objective is <laughs> to get you to that second chapter if we make it that far today. Uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the sixth month of what? Does anybody know? If you're following the context. Now in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Or grace upon you. Or another way of putting it is, God's divine favor is upon you. That's another way of putting that greeting. Verse 29, But she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. What kind of greeting is this? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, grace. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Um, that is uh, Yahshua in the Hebrew language. Uh, and it basically means the Lord is salvation or Savior or the Lord provides salvation. So in other words, in his very name is his mission. You know, in the Old Testament, a lot of times when they name people something, it was reflective of who they are or what they would do. 
And so that's exactly why he was named this way. And as I told you before, the benefit of this is that Mary and Joseph did not need to buy a baby name book, right? They, the name was already given. His name is Yahshua, uh, the salvation is of the Lord. And because that's exactly what he would do. Verse 32, and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? It's almost like Zacharias. He wanted to know how in the world this is impossible. This is naturally impossible. And she's saying the same thing. This is naturally impossible for me to even have a child. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. And then verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Again, that is because the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God and the sovereignty of God and all the attributes that make up the character of God means there's one thing you can never say about him, that it's impossible. The only thing you could say that God can't do is act contrary to the perfection of his nature. That's why he doesn't lie or he doesn't give a promise that he doesn't keep. But those are things he can't do. Everything else he can do. By the way, whatever he purposes to do, he can do because his power will make sure of that. And verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So if you look with me um, at that paper, that, this paper, this newest one that came that I gave you, and if you look to the next page of, of it, it's on uh, the, the one that says at the top, Luke 26 through 38. I just kind of want to cover some of the things that we learn about God, what we learn about people, and what we learn about ourselves. Uh, what do we learn about God from this text? Well, the text provides one of the clearest statements about the identity and mission of Jesus. The clearest statements about the identity and mission of Jesus. I remember when uh, many years ago, 2003, when I was at an expositor's conference, and at the end of the conference, all of the students go to John MacArthur's house and he has a barbecue for all of us students. So we were all there. And um, I happened to be, there was just at the end, everybody else took off. And I happened to be with John MacArthur and Steve Lawson. So we were sitting in John's dining room and I asked him a question. What did he think was some of the problems with the church today? And John said that two problems. He said, first of all, the church has lost its sense of a biblical identity. We're trying to turn churches into like entertainment centers or therapeutic centers or politically active centers, everything but what it was designed to be by God, which is the called out assembly of God's people who worship the Lord and who spread the gospel. 
to the whole world. And that's the first time I ever heard anyone say that he said that to me that he said, but many people in the church today think that their job is to moralize a nation. And then he said, there's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian nation. But people from every tribe and every nation and from every tongue who make up the body of Christ. And he said, so there's a redefining of the church. And the second thing he said, he said, there's a redefining of the identity and the mission of Jesus. <laughs> They're turning Jesus into something that the Bible says he is not. And uh, when I read Luke chapter 2, I don't think it be, can, can be made any clearer as to who he is and why he came. His name captures the essence of his mission. It's to provide salvation. You know what you are acknowledging as a believer? This is kind of a, the dark side of Christmas, I guess. What you're acknowledging when you celebrate Christmas is that I was a desperate, lost sinner and God provided a savior. That's what it is. That's the essence of Christmas, that you were a lost, helpless sinner who could not provide salvation and God did that for you. He made a provision of a savior. It's kind of a different look on Christmas, but that's exactly what's happening here. So we want to make sure that we understand the identity of Christ and the identity in here. Well, let, let, before we go through this little list, you tell me, you look at some of the things that are said about Jesus. What do you learn about him? <clears throat> what do you see? Not everybody at one time. <clears throat> Give me just one thing. What do you see there? His name. His name. What else? He will be great. He, he will be not only great, but did you notice? Yeah, it says in verse 32, he will be great. And what is he called? Son of the, Son of the, Son of the Most High. Whoa. We don't get how startling that is to a Jewish person. Uh, a Jewish person always thought that the Messiah would come. Obviously, his primary purpose, it would only come one time, according to the Jewish mindset and the Jewish teaching on the Messiah in the first century. He would come at one time, and he would rescue, at that time, he would rescue Israel from all of its enemies, and he would restore the golden years, such as they had during the time of the reign of Solomon and King David. And he, they would no longer, they would be a sovereign nation. That's what they believed. But they never believed this about the Messiah, that he would be God-man. They thought he would be an extraordinary man, like King David or like King Solomon. He would be an extraordinary man that God would use in an extraordinary way. But to call someone the son of the Most High in the Jewish mind, what you were saying is that this one who is coming has the exact character of the Most High. You know what that means? He's divine. He has the same equal attributes of God. So being called the son of the most high is 
for a Jewish person, for Mary, it had to be shocking. You know, that this is the one he's called in this way. What else is he called right after that or anything? Yeah, matter of fact, right after that in verse 32, what does it say? <clears throat> What's he given? He's given the throne of who? Yeah, King David. So you know what he is? He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. King David was promised that a descendant of his would come one day and he would have his kingdom and he would reign forever. In order for a king to reign forever, what does that say about him? He's eternal. Because none, none of the leaders of nations in world history have lived forever. Although, like in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, they would greet him and say, O king, live forever. None of them did. But this Messiah is a forever Messiah with a forever kingdom. That's amazing. So when we're reading that, I want you to pay, take note of that. That's in fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 10 and 11, I think, or 12, where King David is told, you're going to have a descendant who's going to have a kingdom, and this kingdom will be forever. What else do we learn about him? Verse 33. Yeah, he's going to be a ruler over Israel. And you'll see that there's a sense in which he rules in our hearts today. But he's going to literally have an earthly kingdom that will eventually become an eternal kingdom. He will come and reign for a thousand years during the millennium in fulfillment of the promise here. He'll be here and then he'll reign forever in the eternal state. So that verse tells me that he will have the, father, the throne of his father, David. In verse 33, he's going to reign over that kingdom forever. His kingdom will have no end. Again, you could never say that about any powerful world empire currently in existence. Even the Antichrist, who is empowered by Satan, has a universal empire for three and a half years. That's not forever, right? Because only God can have a forever kingdom, and so he will have that. Uh, verse 36, Mary said to the angel, how can this be? And of course, we, he says, now there's more things we learn about God here. In verse 35, he says, uh, and he answered, said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. I want you to notice also that in this narrative, you have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And what is the ability of the Holy Spirit according to this passage? What's the Holy Spirit going to do? That's how she conceives a child, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is the source of that conception. Um, this is not a natural conception. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the Bible says he, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to the child. So this is, this is not at, at all a typical biological conception. This is 
a miraculous conception. And again, she is going to have the Son of God. The Son of God. He's called that in there. The Son of God. And again, as I mentioned, that is someone who's equal in nature to God himself. So go back to this page again. I just wanted to make sure that you saw that. These things are going to repeat some of the same that you just saw, but I want to make sure you got that. Uh, so we covered the first dash there, the second dash. There's a direct connection between our Lord's name and his mission. We got that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to King David. We got that. Jesus is the son of the most high, which in a monotheistic culture means that Jehovah God is the only true God, the son of the most high, who is far above all other claims of deity. That's why he is called the most high. In the context of a um, uh, polytheistic means the worship of many, many, many gods. That, that was the religion of the time, uh, the religion of the time. Unlike our religion, which is more like um, worshiping uh, people and, and such. But back then, it was the worship of many, many gods. And in the context of that, the Jewish people often referred to the Lord as the God Most High, above all of them. There's nobody who comes close to him. He has no equal. And that's the point of that. And then Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah whose kingdom will have no end. We mentioned that. <clears throat> Our Lord's virgin birth. This is very important theologically that you understand this. Our Lord's virgin birth indicates that Jesus escaped the racial contamination of sin. He was born without the principle and proclivity of sin throughout his life on earth. Jesus never sinned. That was the purpose of the virgin birth. Otherwise, if Jesus would have been born of Joseph and Mary, he would have had the same sin nature that you and I have, that bent, and he would not only have a sinful nature, but he would eventually practice sin like you and I do, you see. And, but the virgin birth made sure that we had a sinless Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, uh, who can take away sin because of the perfection of who he is. He never committed a sin. That's why it's always a stunning thing when I have studied um, about the, the court, the kangaroo court that Jesus went through, um, at that moment on planet Earth, uh, you had a bunch of leaders that put to death the truly only innocent man who ever walked on Earth. Because he never sinned. He never once sinned. And the Bible highlights that. Let me show you that. Um, take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> when he was talking about reconciliation, he described how it would occur in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then watch this. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of him, of God in him. So this is what happened. Christ became what he never was in order that you could become what you could never do on your own. So this is the great exchange. Now notice it says that he knew no sin. What that means is it doesn't mean that he didn't intellectually know about sin. It means he did not know about sin experientially. He didn't actually commit sin. And all of this is a part of God's plan of redemption so that you and I would have a provision of a perfect sinless sacrifice. Yes, sir. Say that again. How original sin passed through the father mm -hmm. as opposed to both the father and the mother. Yeah, because Adam was our federal head. Remember when he sinned in the garden, actually the first one to commit sin, actually, technically, was Eve. And then she, you know, told him, look at this, looks great. We can be like God. And he ate it. So in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says this, for by one man sin entered the world. So he's talking about Adam because Adam was the head. He was in charge. And because of his sin, even though his wife committed the first sin, technically, the responsibility for sin entering the world was his. And that has been passed on. We uh, have the imputation of Adam's sin to every child that's born since. Does it mean that females then don't have original sin? No, they do, because they are born, they are born from Adam as well. They are born from Adam as well. Yeah, so now even women and men, but it, since men are the federal head, the theology that the Jewish people uh, would speak about is that sin passes. It's interesting what they say. They say sin passes to all humanity uh, via Adam. A person's religion is passed on to them from their mother, which is an interesting uh, uh, deal because that's one of the reasons why the Jews were offended at Timothy and, and Paul had Timothy circumcised because the Jews said, okay, he had, a, he had a Greek father who was not a Jew, but he had a Jewish mother. He needs to be circumcised. And so Timothy consented to that because he didn't want that to trouble the presenting of the gospel. Didn't want that to be an obstructing issue. So yeah, it was the passing on from your religious commitment, if you will, through your mother. But sin always came from the man, you see. Yeah. So yeah, that's very important. Yeah, John, you had one. I'm just going to say it's always important in that verse you just read to remember that Jesus bore our sin. He did not become a sinner. Yeah, he never became a sinner, but he bore not only our sin, folks, but keep this in mind. Jesus bore the full extension of your condemnation upon himself. The full extension of condemnation upon himself in your stead. He bore that for you so that you can be made right with God, so that you can have a destiny in which you will spend eternity with God in the eternal place with a brand new body that does not have the sin nature. Your new body does not have that. Your new body is designed to live forever. This body is not 
designed to live forever. And as you grow older and older, my dear friends who are well-seasoned saints would say a hearty what? Amen. It's hard, isn't it, when this body, you got the duct tape, you got some glue, you try to do your best. <laughs> Most of my hair has been raptured, some of my teeth. You do your best, you know, with what you have. But when you get that brand new body, that's a perfect body that can live forever. It's like the resurrected body of Christ. So all of that was uh, because he never did any sin. Matter of fact, I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 in reference to that. I wanted to highlight that because I want to make sure you get the sinless perfection of Christ. Never true of people, but it is true of Jesus. Um, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, uh, he mentions uh, beginning in uh, 20. Let's get a context for what credit is there if when you sin, you are harshly treated and you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in a step, an example of suffering. And then he makes this comment in verse 22, uh, which comes from uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 9, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So Christ was a perfect man who never committed sin, nor ever lied, never said anything deceptive, dishonest, untrue in his entire 33 years. Uh, and that is what makes him the perfect sacrifice he is. And then after that, it says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, he was not interested in revenge, although they were treating him completely without justice, right? Perfect man. He didn't commit any evil. And he could have, he had the power to, to incinerate those people in an instant. But he had a greater purpose than doing that, than getting revenge. The greater purpose was for him to go to the cross and die in our stead. So he left the judgment of those people who treated him so harshly, he entrusted that to his heavenly father because he had a better, greater task. And the task was to die in our stead. Let's read after that, verse 24. And, and he himself bore our sins, as John brought up earlier. He didn't commit sin, but he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your soul. By the way, when it says you are healed, he is not talking about a physical healing. He's talking about a spiritual healing, which involved bearing your sins. He made it possible for you to now be right with the holy God. He delivered you from the eternal condemnation. That's why the Bible says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he did that because of the perfection of who he was and the fact that he never, never, never 
committed any sin. And of course, that can never be true of anybody else, except for I heard a joke once where a guy was in a class and, and the, the, the teacher said, you know, look, it, Jesus was the only perfect person that ever existed. Does anybody know of any other perfect person? And this one guy raised his hand, yeah, my, my wife's former husband. That's all I hear about him is how perfect he was, you know. <laughs> that not true. He's not, he's not perfect. Nobody is, except for Christ. So let's go back to our notes. <clears throat> let's see, I don't know how many dashes I went down here so far. One, two, three, four, five. Uh, did I do six? John the Baptist is a prophet of the Most High, whereas Jesus is the Son of the Most High making him the promised successor to the eternal kingdom that God promised to King David. Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah whose kingdom will have no end. Our Lord's virgin birth, that's where we were, indicates that Jesus escaped the racial contamination of sin. He was born without the principle and proclivity of sin, and throughout his life on earth, Jesus never sinned. The importance of the virgin birth cannot be overstated. A right view of the incarnation hinges on the truth that Jesus was virgin born. Both Luke and Matthew express that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. The Holy Spirit wrought the conception through supernatural means. The, the nature of Christ's conception testifies both of his deity and his sinlessness. Very important. <clears throat> He's divine in nature and he is never a sinner. He is free from all sin. And then I mentioned this to you too. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in this text. The Lord God, Jesus, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit who provides the power that enables Mary to conceive a son whose name is Jesus. So nothing is impossible with God. That's the point, isn't it, that he makes at the end, Mary to Mary. And that, that's mentioned a lot in the Bible about the fact that nothing is impossible. Can I show you another birth where that was mentioned? Take a look in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. There was a man who was promised a son. He and his wife had no children whatsoever. They were nearing, say, 65. <laughs> when God promised a son would be born to them. And uh, now, at this point, she's 90. And he's 100. What do you think about the possibilities of having a kid when you're 90 and 100? No, it's not going to happen. Unless God intervenes. And so let's show you that. Uh, let's pick it up. Uh, what is, what's the verse I want here? Which one? 15? 14. 14. Yeah. 
uh, take a look at 13 for context. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Um, and by the way, the Lord decided to name her after what she did in response to the promise. Isaac means laughter. <laughs> so she'd be reminded of that, her response. Uh, yeah, so the Lord said that. Verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. <laughs> and he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, the, but the point is, here's another, this is, this is the first miraculous birth. Second one's John the Baptist, and then you've got Jesus. So you've got, God has this history of causing people to be born, even if all the odds are stacked up against it. Because here, it's always important to keep, keep this in mind. God is never under a circumstance he is always sovereign over all circumstances. There is no circumstance that ties God up. It's an important lesson for you to get that. There's no situation where God cannot break through and accomplish a purpose that he has designed and intended sovereignly to become a reality. It, it, and you, you need to, to keep that in mind. You see that so many times in scripture. So like when I read about the future, like when I've been studying a little bit on the prophecy thing again, and I read about those events that will happen in the future, there's a certainty in which I read them. In other words, I don't look at them and doubt that because I, everything he promises to do or says will happen, happens just as he said it would. And everything he promises to do becomes a reality. So when I look at even the prophecies pertaining to you and I, I am absolutely certain about them. Very certain. That's why I love the Greek word for hope, elpis, the word hope. It's not like the way you use the word hope. And we use it in our vernacular today. Um, I, hope, I hope it's going to be 70 tomorrow. <laughs> uh, we use hope meaning wishful thinking wishful thinking. I said that when I was uh, in the city of Chicago, the Chicagoans hoped that the Cubs would win the World Series for 105 years. <laughs> and every time it was wishful thinking, wasn't it? But the word peace means, get this, expectant certainty. So the hope of a Christian by its very nature is an expectant certainty of an outcome because it's promised by God. And what can stand in the way of God's promises? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing stands in the way. We'll see some other passages about that. It's very important to keep that in mind. All right, the third, uh, the, the second dash from the bottom. God has provided the, the world what all mankind needed the most, God did not send into this world another founder of a religious system, another politician, another enlightened master, 
another successful entrepreneur. He sent into this world what we all needed desperately. And so he sent us what? A savior. Very important. Why did he come? You have to keep that in mind. You can't assign Jesus a mission. There there are uh, people in the liberal persuasion of Christianity that say, well, Jesus came to show us a moral example, a moral example of taking care of people, uh, making, uh, here, putting this, uh, Jesus came to end all poverty and and all injustice and bring about equity and uh, diversity and all these other things. So he's like a glorified social worker. Uh, because in a, in a secular or, or in a, a leftist version of Christianity, they don't believe in the salvation of the individual. They believe in corporate salvation, the salvation of culture and society from the ills of the fall. Put it this way, what they're attempting to do is to reverse the curse. And that ain't going to happen. The only one who's going to reverse the curse is the one who will destroy this earth and create a new heaven and a new earth. Then it's gone. But there's an effort to reverse the curse, you see. And so they say they, they give Jesus a new assignment that correlates with their theology. He's the greatest social worker you've ever seen. However, many of those in the liberal persuasion deny the resurrection. Now, why is that a problem? because it makes Jesus the greatest liar the world's ever seen. Because he said on a number of occasions, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect. So if he did not resurrect, he is a proven liar. So when you start assigning him Uh, an assignment other than the one God gave him, you always end up in trouble. So it's important that we always keep, here's what he is. It's telling you right here, right from the day when the announcement was made that he would be coming into this world. It's telling you who he is. In the Old Testament, it tells you who he is. We'll get to that as well. In the New Testament, obviously, it tells you who he is. Now, what do we learn about people from the text? Well, Mary, this is very important for you former Catholic people. Boy, did you hear that testimony after testimony the other day? Where did these people all come from? (laughs) Roman Catholicism. Mary is the recipient of God's grace, not the giver of grace. You understand that? Uh, She was told twice that the divine favor of God is upon you. Uh, What does that always imply? You're not deserving but God's going to give you this. Put it this way. Every person who has ever received grace from God, every one of those did not deserve it. But they all got it. The ones that have received the grace of God in salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourself. So there's never a, a person on planet Earth who is deserving deserving of grace and who's deserving of mercy. And yet every believer is a recipient 
undeserving as they are, of grace and mercy. So Mary's in the same camp. We're going we're gonna to see when we look at the Magnificat that the first thing that Mary says about her God is she calls him my Savior. Who's, who's the only ones who need a Savior? A sinner. <laughs> so Mary was not, according to Catholic theology, they say that she was born like Jesus without sin. And Mary never sinned ever in her life. So they called that the Immaculate Conception. But the Bible would not agree with that, even based on Mary's own words and what the Bible tells us about her being a recipient of grace, not a giver of grace. She does not impart the grace of God to anybody else. Mary, like Zacharias, thought her circumstance would make Gabriel's proclamation impossible. Remember both of them. And I, can, I get that. I get that. Anytime anybody's going to tell you that something is going to be happening out of the extraordinary of the natural, your first reaction is, um, and if I told you today, folks, I'm telling you, at the end of this class, I'm going to fly, literally fly around this classroom. I would understand why all of you would say, um, no, that's impossible. <laughs> it goes against the laws of nature. You can't fly in your, you can flop your arms as much as you want. You're never going to fly. Uh, however, in the 1960s, many of us thought we could fly, but that was because we were drug-induced. Drug and now we're in charge of your government, so keep that in mind. <laughs> Just wanted you to know that, that, uh, that uh, that's why some of your senators go, wow, man, I'm here, wow. When we were in the 60s, we could say, wow, backwards and forwards. Wow, man. Yeah. Can, can I ask, uh, as a Jew, uh, would Mary have any, even the slightest of an indication that this was the fulfillment of Genesis, the seed of a woman? Yeah, she probably, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know much about how much she was instructed in Judaism, because sad to say, a lot of the Pharisees, at least in her time, thought that it was not beneficial to train women in their faith. They would learn from one another. They might learn from their own dad. Um, so we're not really sure to what extent. Uh, I know that a lot of this was perplexing to her, but I'm sure in time she would have known you know, because that is what they call, I'm not going to use the Latin term, but they call that the pre-evangelism verse. The verse that says that Satan would strike the, the, the seed of the woman in the heel, but he would strike him in his head, which indicated a fatal blow. And that is what they call pre-evangelism. It's the first good news that there would be someone, the seed of the woman. And so, yeah, I mean, I just don't know to what extent she was trained. I know that she keeps them when she hears these things. We're going to see when we get into the second chapter, when the shepherds come and tell her all that was told to her, it says she pondered these things, like she thought about them. And whoa, uh, pondered doesn't suggest she had a full grasp, but she was trying to take this all in. I'm trying to understand what's going on here. It's an amazing thing. 
And by the way, her allowance, matter of fact, the next point Mary submitted at the bottom of the page, Mary sub submitted to the plan of God for her and left the consequences of her obedience in God's hands. Wow. I mean, and there were consequences. I told you about the con potential consequences for a woman who's betrothed to be pregnant before the consummation of the marriage. Uh, the ultimate payment could have been stoning to death. Uh, or a secondary would be given a certificate of divorce uh, to send her away, which, Mary, which she could get married again, but whoever she got married to would already know that there's, she's got a certificate that she's not a virgin, <laughs> that she's been unfaithful already. Um, so that... that that certificate of divorce was uh, really in, in Judaism for men. Men would carry that certificate with them. <laughs> you burn the bagels, honey. That's it. Here it is. You're done. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad it was. That's why Jesus had that conversation about can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Because it was thought, one of the, one of the Pharisees taught that anything that you found in your wife that caused you to dislike her, you could, you could send her away. And Jesus said, no, no, no. There's only one reason, and that is for marital infidelity. That's the only reason. And, and it wasn't a command. They said, why did Moses command us to give her a certificate? And, her? and if you look at the passage that that came from, he didn't command it. That was a, that was a gracious, really a gracious effort, really to protect the woman from an abusive husband an unfaithful husband. Um, that's what it was really about, you know, but they were abusing it. So that's the way it goes. All right, flip the page. We got a few, one more thing or two more things. So what do we learn about ourselves from this text? Yes, we do not, what do we learn about ourselves from this text? Number first dash, I should say, an unwavering certitude regarding the person and the primary mission of Jesus is the best deterrent to being taken in by false teaching about Jesus. What I mean is when you understand absolutely who Jesus is and why he has come, you are not susceptible to the Jehovah Witnesses or to the Mormons or to anybody who comes to you with a new Jesus. And that is the constant effort on planet Earth is to redefine Jesus, to come up with a new Jesus. Um, I even read one time in a Wall Street Journal article, I was shocked. I was reading about it and they were saying that Jesus really was the greatest CEO that the world has ever seen because his product went universal and it continues on. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? So there, there, there's constantly, listen, the, one of the latest ones that came up, um, in, it started in the 90s, is that Jesus was a homosexual and his lover was John. So there's always an effort to redefine him and to redefine his mission. And the only, the only protection we have is a solid biblical understanding of the person and mission of Christ. Christology is an extremely important study among the disciplines of believers. We got to know who Jesus is.
because the world is constantly trying to give us a Jesus, one who is more accommodating to, to sin, more, one who's, who lets people um, gag themselves on their sin. And that's not the Jesus of the scripture, just so you know that. Next dash, we are not able to fix the problem of sin and the spiritual death that it brings. That is why God provided us with the only perfect sacrifice who can take away sin uh, or take away, take, make us free from sin's curse and condemnation. Listen, the birth of Christ, I said that in a clumsy way, but I'll put it in a simple way. Uh, the birth of Christ is a testimony to man's desperate need for a Savior. Otherwise, why send him? Why, why did he come into the world? Matter of fact, if I were Jesus, and this eliminates the whole idea of a work salvation system, the birth of Christ eliminates that. You say, why? Well, because he came to bear the sins. It's even in his name that he came to bear our sins. And then when you follow his mission, what do you see him doing? Bearing our sins on the cross. If we could have done that through our own efforts, if there was something good that we could have done, then why would Christ go to the cross and die in our stead? If I were Jesus and there was discussion in heaven about salvation, and one of the ways that people could get saved would be by good works, and the other way would be by his own sacrificial death. I would have said, I vote for the good works. Because the other one is going to cause me horrendous, horrendous pain. I'm going to have to leave the glory of heaven. I'm going to have to take upon myself the limitations of man. I'm going to have to be abused like nobody else has ever been abused and then die via the worst form of capital punishment ever invented, crucifixion. So I'll go with the good works if that's the way you can get saved. But that's not the way you can get saved. So later on when Jesus is in Gethsemane, he prays three times. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. The cup was representative of all of the agony and the pain and the suffering that he was about to experience hours away, a couple hours away. Take this cup from me, if possible. He prayed that three times. Let me tell you this. If there was some other way by which you could be saved, it would have been revealed to Jesus in answer to his prayer. There's nobody more righteous than Jesus praying to his heavenly father. But what was the answer to the threefold prayer request? No. He had to go to the cross and he had to bear our sins. So in other words, all of this work systems that it, it, it seems like, well, some people say, well, yeah, yeah, he did die on the cross, but that was his part for our redemption. Now you have your part of redemption that you have to do. You have to keep commandments and receive sacraments and 
observe these holy days and do this and do that through some sort of legislation of religion that you would somehow contribute, contribute to what Jesus died. And when you do that, when you have, when you put a, a work system next to his, you are denying the sufficiency of the cross work of Christ. You're saying that there was a deficiency that I can make up. Me, a wretched dead sinner. There's something I can contribute so that that salvation finally works. I want to show you from Galatians chapter 2. Remember, Paul was pretty upset about the Galatians. And uh, receiving a distorted gospel, which was one of works. And by the way, the devil never, 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 never stops that. Because that is a great way of guaranteeing a person's trip to hell. Is to get them to trust in some other formula other than the one that God has given to us for the salvation of the soul. And in chapter 2, he makes this startling statement. Uh, at verse 21, he said, I do not nullify the grace of God. And he's talking about the grace of God in saving you and I. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, that means right standing with God, comes through the law, what are the next words? Then Christ died needlessly. In other words, what, what would be the need? Why, why go to the cross? Why suffer this pain? If I could get right through law-keeping, if I could get the position of right standing by obedience to the law. Now, good luck with that. Most people think there's only 10 of them. There's 613 laws. So there's no way in the world that you're going to be able to keep all of those perfectly. And it also nullifies, again, the cross work of Christ. So it's important when we read the Christmas story, what's Christmas about? One of the banners that we could associate with Christian uh, Christmas that we don't is that Christmas is about the salvation of wretched, hopeless sinners. That's what it's about. That's why he came. He came to die for your sins. And it's so very very important because it eliminates all these false notions of uh, why he came into this world. Okay, any questions at that point? <laughs> I'm just going to, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Do Orthodox Jews teach what now? Uh, try to observe all 613 laws. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how, I mean, why, don't, why do they explain that they don't sacrifice the land? Yeah, um, great questions. That was once a question that I asked a, a, a co-worker who was a Jewish person. I asked them this question, which is related to your question. She asked, why don't they offer sacrifices? And um, I asked him, I said, who told you to stop the sacrifices? 
And his response was, we know we don't have a temple. He said, because we don't have a temple where the sacrifices were supposed to be, which is true, um, you know, to be offered, we don't have such a place like that. And of course, back even then, when I first met this guy, which is way back in the 60s, late 60s, <clears throat> he said, if we did try to start the temple, all hell would break out in the Mideast if we tried to rebuild the temple. And he was right about that. He said, they get their Yom Kippurs, how they, they confess them at that time. So it's more done by confession rather than a sacrifice. Um, so the, and they do agree that there are the 613 laws. But in Judaism, they also agree that righteousness, till this day, righteousness is procured through obedience to the law. So you, you can't get right with Jehovah God if you don't comply with the, with the law. And, and non-Orthodox or leftist Judaism um, really have very low connection with anything of the Torah. They acknowledge the existence of the Torah but um, they, for example, a leftist, uh, a, a left-leaning Orthodox, no, left-leaning Jew, liberal Jew, would say that the Messiah is not a person. The Messiah is a stage of existence when all things, when we achieve peace, when we eliminate poverty, when we have equity, and that is achieved, that's the Messiah. So the Messiah is an age and not a person. Yeah, that's the way they view it. So they don't, they don't look at personal salvation in Christ or anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pastor, they're just curious. How do they view the Jewish, uh, the Jews? How do they view Isaiah 53? Yeah, very well. Um, how, how do the Jewish people view Isaiah 53? You all familiar pretty much with Isaiah 53? It's an, an actual, Isaiah 53 is an actual description of what happened to Jesus when he went to the cross and bore our sins. It says things like, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own, own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, technically speaking, Isaiah 53 is written in anticipation of the Jews at the time of the second coming. If you look at Isaiah 53, it'll say things like, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Our sins were placed on him, all past tense. So it's the Jewish people at the time of the second coming realizing, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And their hearts are broken over the reality because now they realize in Isaiah 53. So Isaiah, when he wrote that, prophetically was talking about what happened to Jesus when he went to the cross. But he was, his picture was way beyond that. It was when the Jews would recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. And so today, a Jewish person would say one uh, some of their, their Torahs or their scriptures exclude the chapter, some of them. Some of them say that that's describing the suffering of Israel as a nation. 
But the problem is when you interpret that passage in that manner, Israel bore the sins for everybody? I don't know of anything like that, you know. So in other words, it, it just doesn't work when you're doing, uh, but they, they ignore it, they don't like it. Uh, my Jewish friend that I was telling you about, I asked him, I challenged him to read Isaiah 53 and tell me what he thought of it. And came back the next week, I said, so what did you think? His name was Jay. So what did you think, Jay, of Isaiah 53? He's Jewish now, keep in mind. He says, well, it sounds like Jesus to me. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> sounds like Jesus to me. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why they don't read it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, so there's not a, a reading of that passage really as much as it should be. Well, next week we get into Luke chapter 2, which is where I wanted to begin, <laughs> but I had to tell you all this stuff. And we'll cover, we cover the actual birth Man, are there some good things in here. Some things that you never even thought of. But now I'm going to make you think of those things. And that's why they pay me the big bucks. So I can. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. <laughs>